0: Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter-shrimp scampi. Mm, Hello, fresh! Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.
2: Have you ever bought something, owned something, that really inspired you to up your game? tennis racket, a new pair of running shoes, a new piece of cooking equipment that made you just want to cook your brains out. I know that when I first started cooking on induction burners, I just couldn't stop. It was so much fun. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go you'll never go without. Some of the features that are available on this car include dynamic sky panorama glass roof, front row massaging seats, you know you want that. Available 33-inch all-terrain tires, which you will want when you check out the Multi-Terrain Select. These are really great features, the kind of features that will make you proud and happy to own a Lexus GX. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. We're all drinking more water these days, and we're all concerned that we're drinking safe, clean, unpolluted water. Yet, according to our friends at the Environmental Working Group, three out of four homes in the United States have harmful contaminants in their tap water. That's why it's worth checking out Aquatru. AquaTrue purifiers use a four-stage reverse osmosis purification process and their countertop purifiers work with no installation or plumbing. They remove 15 times more contaminants than ordinary pitcher filters and are specifically designed to combat chemicals like PFAS, you know, those forever chemicals in your water supply. PFAS, by the way, is found in almost 45% of U.S. tap water. Aquatru has water purifiers to fit every type of home, from installation-free countertop purifiers to higher capacity under-sink options. Their proprietary purification technology is independently tested to remove over 80 of the most harmful contaminants, including chlorine, fluoride, arsenic, PFAS, nitrates, and many, many others. Today, listeners to Food with Mark Bitman receive twenty percent off any Aquatru purifier. Just go to aquatru.com. That's a q u a t r u dot com, and enter code Bitman at checkout for twenty percent off any Aquatru water purifier. Go to aquatru.com and use the promo code Bitman. B i t t m a n. I cover all things food, from cooking to gardening to fabulous ingredients to junk food, health, sustainability, even policy. You might say I'm obsessed with everything about food. Food is the one substance that connects everything to everything else, and it connects us all. Not only can we not live without it, not only does it determine much of what goes on in the world, but we love it. Hi and welcome to Food. I'm Mark Bittman. Today we have the great Tom Colicchio, host of Top Chef, one of the country's and certainly of New York's greatest chefs, especially from an activist point of view. He is right up there and we'll talk about that. It's an interesting conversation. I'll have a couple of beautiful fruit recipes for you. Very simple and very summer friendly. We'll take your questions, as always, and the number for those is 833-FOOD-POD. That's 833-366-3763. And we'll have more on food. I'm going to talk about a really simple recipe for stewed cherries, which is so simple that the wind-up and the pitch is going to take three times as long as the recipe. But I say that this is for stewed cherries, but it's really a general technique for stewing fruit. And you can do it with almost any stone fruit. Cherries are, I don't know if they're the best, but they're kind of the most common. But you could certainly do this with apricots, peaches. You can even do this kind of thing with grapes and blueberries. But but let's, let's start with cherries. This can be sour cherries if you're lucky enough to find them. They're much harder to find than the more common Bing cherries. But either are great. Sour cherries will take more sugar, of course. And you can stew them in wine or stock, for that matter, or just sweetened water or juice. I always liked stewed fruit, but I was in Turkey once and had these stewed cherries, just sweetened poached cherries on good toast. And that was like one of the best desserts ever. So I'm strongly suggesting that. So the recipe, take a couple of pounds of cherries. I really think sour are preferable because they're more complex tasting and combined with sugar, better than sweet, which become kind of bland. But let's say two pounds of cherries, sour, sweet, a cup of water or other liquid, a pinch of cinnamon, maybe some lemon juice, some lemon zest, And sugar to taste. So put all of that in a medium saucepan and cook, stirring until the cherries are really soft. It's at least 15 minutes. Taste that liquid and add sugar as necessary. I'd start with half a cup. You'll probably wind up using a lot more. Just taste and taste and taste, and the liquid will become sweet obviously, and thick, thicker, and delicious. Hold off on the lemon juice and add that at the end. Again, add that to taste. So you want, obviously, a balance between sweet and tartness. These can be served warm or at room temperature or cold. They also make a great, if you stew, for example, cherries and peaches together. It's just a wonderful fruit soup to eat with a spoon. But again, my favorite way to eat these is that cherries on toast. Okay, try that. You will enjoy it. So, Tom, welcome to Food with Mark Bittman.
1: Thank you. Thanks for having me.
2: I want to start with some of the more challenging issues, because you're one of the few chefs that we can talk about those things with. Um, And then we'll move on to fun stuff later. So, you know, we're in not dissimilar positions. I often find myself struggling with how to bridge the gap between cooking and recipes and justice around the food system. And you do that, too. You're inarguably... A celebrity chef, but you're also an activist. I wonder how you manage both roles, what the challenges are in that. How you just feel about that that kind of dual role?
1: Yeah, you know, I mean I I prefer chef celebrity, if I have to (laughs) use the word celebrity. Uh and listen, there's always been creative people that have been activists. Uh you think of uh, Harry Belafonte, you know, to, to, you know, modern day Sean Penn and a bunch of people in between. You don't have to separate the two. People want to know where you stand. I mean, even big companies nowadays, they're being asked, like, where do you stand on the voting rights act? And, and they have to actually, you know, jump in and take a side. I think uh, consumers are spending, you know, they're voting with their dollars and their dollars are going towards companies that care. And so for me, it was, you know, always pretty easy. I mean, number one, I was early on, I am mean, advocating for, you know, people who are struggling so they can feed themselves more, you know, nutritious foods. Um, who, who's going to fight me on that? <laughs> I mean, who's going to say that's a bad thing? And if they do, well, you know, I'm not, I'm not that concerned, but uh, no, I, I, I square pretty easily. Um, and, you know, we also try to, to live up to the ideals that I am advocating for in our businesses. So we're, we're buying and it's not a new fad. We've been buying from farmers directly for 20, almost 30, well, 35 years that I've been a chef in New York. And, uh, you know, try to do better by our employees, try to make the, our restaurants a, a more... Hospital environment to work these are things that i've done, and so it's it's yeah it's pretty easy to square the two
2: so tell me this why why don't more chefs use their influence in the way that you do in such an admirable way to me, it's always seemed that you know many restaurants seem to or claim to teeter on the edge of bankruptcy or at least use that as an excuse to skimp on either paying workers well or buying cheap ingredients or both. Why is that 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 seems to be sort of the general case in the industry? Or you can tell me I'm wrong.
1: Well, I I think uh, in the aggregate, you're probably right. Uh, but there are plenty of chefs um, who have been, you know, not only advocating for a better food system, but also you know, living up to those, those values in their businesses. And, and uh, you know, again, going back to Alice Waters and, and you know, so many other chefs that are, are doing it. But I think there's one thing to, to buy from farmers and try to treat your employees well. That's something you should do running a business. On the other side, when you advocate and when you actually start looking into policy, it just takes work. And it's also, it's not something that a lot of people are interested in. You know, sifting through policy and and also realizing that the only way to affect policy is to start, you know, spending time with people who make our policies, spending time, uh, you know, going to conferences, you know, really immersing yourself in, in you know, in, in that that business of, of policy. It's not for everyone. It's not, it's not that interesting to most people. And, and that's fine. Everybody does. You know, they do things in their own way. You know, a lot of chefs are very, very much uh, involved in food banking and, and you know, with either uh, New York Food Bank, uh, Feeding America, and so yeah, a lot, a lot of chefs are, are involved. But a- again, they are more involved from the side of raising money to help fund organizations. I mean, to me, that was that was the learning curve for me because I was very comfortable just raising money for the organizations, you know, doing the dinners and the, the walk around events, and and that was all great. And, you know, and and you felt good about raising, you know, a million dollars in one night for hunger. But then when you realize you would have to do that every single night for like 14 years if you really want to make a dent. And so you, you start realizing where your efforts, at least the decision for me was to, you know, where my efforts should really go.
2: You know, I don't want to push you and I'm not asking you to name names. I think for a lot of chefs, that kind of charity stuff, the hunger relief stuff is, you know, a legitimate way to give something back. I think, you know, I'm not questioning their motives. And I'm also not questioning that not everybody has to be as active as you do. That would be, you know, that would be ridiculous, a ridiculous thing. I go back to my original question, which is that why does, why is there this this sense that if I pay my workers well, I don't have a business that makes me any money? Or, and or... If I treat farmers well, if I make a point of buying good ingredients, it's almost like, you know, there's three things. There's your fixed costs, there's your labor costs, and there's your food costs. And, you know, I've been writing, I've been working with chefs and writing about this stuff for 40 years. I always felt like there was these three things. There's nothing you can do about the fixed costs. And if you want to make money, you have to either pay workers badly, treat workers badly, or buy shitty ingredients, you know, like have the Cisco truck. I mean, I'm not saying that's happening all the time. But, but it's almost like, what does it take to make this business work and at the same time treat people well?
1: Yeah, I think a lot of that has to do, you're leaving out one part of the equation, and that's a price elasticity and what someone could charge for a meal. Because of the restaurants that I run, I have a little more uh, elasticity in pricing. And so I can, I can charge more. The hard part is trying to get the consumer that wants workers to be treated better, wants to see workers get a better, you know, pay scale in restaurants, wants to see a more humane way for, for restaurants to treat their employees, but yet they're not always willing to pay for that. And so that's where the equation needs to change. I mean, I get into these debates on tipping, getting into the argument and saying, well, okay, you want to get rid of tipping, fine we're going to have to raise prices by 25%, maybe 30%. And they're like, why should I pay for that? Well, you're paying for it anyway. You're leaving a tip. Well, then the question is, well, I leave a 20% gratuity. Why 25 or 30? Well, now it's taxable income. You got to pay tax on that because a tip is not. And also there's associated cost involved with higher pay rates, various uh, paying into unemployment and paying into taxes and paying into insurances. And so there's associated costs with it. So that's why you'd have to do that. And quite frankly, I'm all for getting rid of the tip credit. I'm okay with it. I, 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 for, very, for other reasons, I want to see it go, particularly the 80-20 rule. There's a lot of reasons why some you know, some businesses can't afford to pay more money or to buy food at a green market. And so, the, and so I think on the paying people more money, that tells me it's a failed business. On the buying product, it, it doesn't. You're going you're gonna to buy your product, you're going to do the best you can with it. I support buying from farmers because I think it makes my food more delicious. Um, I also like them. I also like that the people I tend to buy from, and purchase from, take care of the land. And, you know, they are without really pretty much thought into it, are carbon farming. And so uh, I I choose to do that for a lot of reasons, but I I don't I don't I don't really fault anybody for not doing that. Um, In fact, if everyone did that, I don't think there'd be enough supply to supply us. I'm quite sure you're
2: right. I mean, that's that's true in general. If everybody in the United States decided to start eating well tomorrow, there's not enough food. But I would happily agree with you that if you can't afford to pay your workers, it's a failed business and the food thing is more discretionary. If that's If that's what you're saying, I'm kind of happy you come down at that place. I mean, you're saying you choose to do the good food thing in addition to the good worker thing. I wish there were more people going. I mean... I wish there were more people fighting about policy. But okay, we'll get past that. Did all of this start with you with what we used to
1: call hunger relief? Yeah, so, so what happened was when, uh, you know, I was fine doing my thing, raising money for various anti-hunger organizations, like so many other chefs. And then my, my wife was mentoring a young girl whose family was living in a shelter in Brooklyn and she would come to our house and it was clear that she, you know she was often hungry. And it was also clear that she had some learning disabilities. And so we effectively got her out of the public school system into a private setting Uh, because in public school, if the public school can't meet the needs of the kid, you can put them into private settings. This wasn't some fancy private school. This was just a, a school that was outside of the public school system to meet her needs. And we got a call. Uh, I think within the first week or so, my wife did it, saying that it's clear this this girl is hungry, that they didn't have a breakfast and lunch program because it was a private school. And she was clearly hungry. And my wife, uh, as you know, she's a writer and director. She does more narrative stuff, not documentaries, but she decided to explore this issue of hunger in America. And very early on in her in her research that she discovered, again, that, that people aren't hungry in, the, in this country for the reasons why people are usually hungry in other countries. It's not from famine or war or uh, lack of resources. It was really political will. So that was the premise of the film. That, that became the premise of the film. And so the film got distribution and it was distributed around you know the country. And we also took it out on the sort of the tour, going to college campuses and Congress and before the film came out, I um, testified in Congress at uh, Miller's hearing. Miller was the the congressman from California, George Miller. So, yeah, I testified in his committee on uh, uh, nutrition and uh, I tested alongside uh, Tom Vilsack. Also, uh, another guy, I'm forgetting his name, he was a general with mission readiness and he talked about how troops are malnourished and a lot of them are 25% drop out because they're they're malnourished and of course someone from heritage thinking that we should never feed people and never spend a dime on feeding people um, so but and that that was the first bit of of politicking that I did and then what happened after the film came out Ken Cook who I'm, I'm sure you know Ken and I you know Ken was in the film and we got together and discussed creating an organization similar to the League of Conservation Voters and uh, so we, we started Food Policy Action and we published a scorecard and graded Congress on how they voted on various food issues. And that clearly put me on Capitol Hill. So um, I would go and, and walk the halls and lobby. I was an unpaid, unregistered lobbyist and, and just go and talk to people. And then we started working with the Beer Foundation like maybe two years after this, starting put, putting together their boot camps to teach people how to teach chefs how to lobby. So they, we started, you know, bringing a, an army of chefs to the Hill and th- that was it. And, you know, I, I also, I got to meet a lot of people. Remember I was on the Hill, Shelly Pingree, the congresswoman from Maine, we would end up at her house, uh, afterwards, uh, she would always have a, a meal catered and there was probably anywhere from 60 to 70 members of Congress, mostly, uh, House members, every now and then the senator would come in and it was, it was always a big deal. So that's how I got to meet everyone. And, and that's when a lot of the stuff is done. I mean, yes, you, you meet staffers and, and you meet people when you're on the Hill, but those, the, those parties, I got to meet a lot of people. And, and um, I got to say, as polarized as people believe things are, Republicans would show up. You can actually have a conversation a, a, and they would get it and they would care. Often, they wouldn't vote that way. But, you know, at least behind closed doors, there was definitely some, some bipartisan, you know, talk and togetherness. And, and uh, so that, that's, that's how, that's how it happened for me. And it's, you know, there's only a handful of chefs that really do that, you know, the Michel Nichans in the world and, and uh, you know, Andrew Zimmer a little bit and, and, you know, Spike Mendelsohn is spending more and more time. I know we working with the mayor, Muriel Bowser um, and uh, in DC on food policy, local food policy. And, and there's, I'm sure I'm leaving out plenty, but there, but, but, when we started taking chefs on there, they really started to, to stay involved and get involved. And uh, to this day, they still are. Tiffany Derry who's a chef in, uh, I think, uh, Texas in the Dallas area. She's stayed very active. Um, and so we were, we're, we're converting some chefs over and some of them are, are, are becoming more uh, politically astute. But for me, you know, I started out. You know, I grew up in a fairly political household. My father was a president of his union. He was a corrections officer. And he also campaigned for various people. And the news was always on. And so I I grew up understanding politics from a young age. So it wasn't something that scared me.
2: What form is your activism taking these days? What are you focusing on?
1: Well, I mean, I spent the last year uh, working on the Restaurant Act, the Restaurant Revitalization Act. And, you know, we got it passed. It, It was, again, a year of a lot of people... Uh, chefs and restaurateurs across this country who became very politically active. And when I say politically active, I'm not talking about going to do a protest. I'm talking about picking up the phone and calling your members and telling them what you need. I mean, number one, we had to educate Congress on how restaurants work. Um, we had to educate the public. We had a very re- receptive media. And, you know, I spent a lot of time on national media because I'm in the New York market, but tons of our members spend time in their local markets. And we went from a not being an organization on March 14th of last year, I think we actually had our first call on like the 17th, to getting legislation written twice, because it was written, and then we had a new government, so we had to write it again, <clears throat> so both in the Senate, Senate and the House, bipartisan support. You know, we had Earl Blumenauer wrote the bill in the House. Congressman from Portland, Oregon, and uh, Roger Wicker, who's a Republican from Mississippi, wrote the Restaurant Act bill in the Senate uh, and got a lot of support from uh, Kristen Sinema. And we had Elizabeth Warren co-sponsoring a bill with uh, Lindsey Graham. And so we had, we had 200, I think at the end, like 210 co-sponsors in the House and 50, over 50, I think 52, 53 co-sponsors in the Senate. Um, it was the first bill that Chuck Schumer put on the floor when he became leader, and it passed with overwhelming bipartisan support. So that's how I spent my last year um, during COVID. And, you know, again, luckily, all those people that I met when I was up on the Hill, they all answered the phone. They all were very receptive. And I had people like Sherrod Brown who said, Tom, I'm, I'm heading up banking now. I don't co-sponsor bills. When I got done talking to him, he co-sponsored the bill. It was it was a great experience. It really was. I mean, and, and even to this day, just last week, I was on the uh, doing my podcast, and I had Senator Schumer on, and he told me that you know we had a huge celebration when we were finally a part of the of the stimulus package because we weren't at first. By the stimulus package did not include the restaurant act, and Chuck Schumer made sure that it got in there. So we had a big celebration that day. We had a big celebration when they actually, the, the SBA started taking applications. And then that day was last week when I was on the phone with Senator Schumer that the first dollars went out of the program. And so it's just been, I mean, you know, you know how hard it is to get a bill written. It takes years. You know, Sam Cass, who, who didn't have a, a horse in this race, meaning he didn't have a restaurant. He was with us from day one. And he certainly knows how difficult it is to get a bill. Through Congress, and he still to this day can't believe it happened. It's it's been a, just a, a great experience. Now, unfortunately, the 28.6 billion dollars that we got is already run out. What we did is we made sure that all the small restaurateurs, all the minority owners, women-owned businesses, veterans were taken care of first. And so, the 28.6 billion dollars is gone, <laughs> and hopefully, uh, we're working now on getting that plused up.
2: Did an organization come out of this?
1: Yes. The Independent Restaurant Coalition, that's, that's what we called ourselves from day one. And as we still call ourselves, we we are now a trade organization.
2: And what's your relationship like with the other NRA?
1: I've never really had a relationship with them. They don't like what we're doing. They're trying to take a lot of credit for our work.
2: Well, they do like what you're doing then. They just wish they were doing it.
1: Well, yeah. They don't like that there's another somebody else in town lobbying and... Quite frankly, uh, after the first round of PPP, when a lot of uh, chain restaurants received a lot of money, it didn't really look, you know, bode well for the, for the other NRA. And uh, uh, lawmakers reached out to the Independent Restaurant Coalition as more of an honest broker.
0: We're
2: going to take a quick break, and then we'll be back with more food in just a minute. Hi folks, a word from our friends at Made In. Did you know that most of the dishes in Tom Calicchio's craft restaurant are made-in, made-in pots and pans? The braised short ribs? Made-in, made-in. The Rohan duck? Made-in, made-in. The heritage pork chop? You got it. Made-in, made-in. Which isn't surprising. Made-in has been supplying top chefs and restaurants with high-end cookware for years. For the simple reason that Made In makes exactly what demanding chefs are looking for. Their carbon steel cookware, for example, combines the best of cast iron and stainless steel, gets super hot, and is rugged enough for grills or an open flame. Best of all, Made In is sold online, so their professional-grade cookware is far more affordable than other iron brands. If you want to take your cooking to the next level, remember what so many great dishes on menus all around the world have in common. They're made in, made in. Save up to 25% this Memorial Day from the 18th until the 27th. Visit madeincookware.com. That's madeincookware.com. Thanks. Have you ever bought something, owned something that really inspired you to up your game? A tennis racket, a new pair of running shoes, a new piece of cooking equipment that made you just want to cook your brains out? I know that when I first started cooking on induction burners, I just couldn't stop. It was so much fun. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Some of the features that are available on this car include... Dynamic Sky panorama glass roof, front row massaging seats, you know you want that. Available 33-inch all-terrain tires, which you will want when you check out the multi-terrain select. These are really great features, the kind of features that will make you proud and happy to own a Lexus GX. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing, at your Lexus dealer. Hi, folks. We have a new sponsor and an interesting one. We all take about 20,000 breaths a day, and Americans spend about 90% of our time indoors. That indoor air that we breathe can be up to 100 times more polluted than outdoor air, according to the EPA. And indoor air pollutants could cause respiratory symptoms like sneezing, congestion, scratchy throat, and even more serious health problems like lung and heart disease. So, what's the solution? Introducing AirDoctor, the air purifier that filters out 99.99% of dangerous contaminants so your lungs don't have to. This includes allergens, pollen, pet dander, dust mites, mold spores, and even bacteria and viruses. AirDoctor comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee, so if you don't love it, just send it back for a refund. Head to AirDoctorPro.com and use promo code BITMAN, B-I-T-T-M-A-N, and you'll receive up to $300 off air purifiers. Exclusive to our listeners, you will also receive a free three-year warranty on any unit, which is an additional $84 value. Lock in this special offer by going to AirDoctorPro.com. That's A-I-R-D-O-C-T-O-R-P-R-O.com and use the promo code BITMAN. We're all drinking more water these days and we're all concerned that we're drinking safe, clean, unpolluted water. Yet, according to our friends at the Environmental Working Group, three out of four homes in the United States have harmful contaminants in their tap water. That's why it's worth checking out AquaTrue. AquaTrue purifiers use a four-stage reverse osmosis purification process, and their countertop purifiers work with no installation or plumbing. They remove 15 times more contaminants than ordinary pitcher filters and are specifically designed to combat chemicals like PFAS, you know, those forever chemicals in your water supply. PFAS, by the way, is found in almost 45% of U.S. tap water. AquaTru has water purifiers to fit every type of home, from installation-free countertop purifiers to higher capacity under-sink options. Their proprietary purification technology is independently tested to remove over 80 of the most harmful contaminants, including chlorine, fluoride, arsenic, PFAS, nitrates, and many, many others. Today, listeners to Food with Mark Bitman receive twenty percent off any Aquatru purifier. Just go to aquatru.com. That's a q u a t r u dot com, and enter code Bitman at checkout for twenty percent off any Aquatru water purifier. Go to AquaTrue.com and use the promo code Bitman. B i t t m a n. let's shift gears a little bit. I'm wondering whether Top Chef is fun and what's fun about it, what's gratifying about it. You've been doing it for how many years now?
1: Uh, I think it's 18 seasons. You know what? It is a lot of fun and it's becoming more fun. I think like season three, four, five, not as much fun, but I, I liken it to summer camp, which I, I didn't go to, but I, I understand it's how summer camp works. It's it's a bunch of of you know, people bringing you know, production team that we see when we're shooting. So for the six or seven weeks we're on the shoot, we all hang out. We all have a great time. A bunch of us are musicians. We play together. There's a little drinking to be had and it's a blast. I've gotten to to really enjoy spending time with both gal and, and Padma, but you know, it ends, it starts and ends six weeks and you're done. And you, you know, next year you go back and do it again. Also, I am really, really enjoying, you know, the the chefs are a lot less cutthroat than they used to be. There's a lot less bickering, which is really great. But I think the real benefit is getting to see so much young talent and our chefs are talented, you know, really, really talented individuals. And um, it's great for me to get to know them, get to see what they're doing. You know, I wouldn't have a front row into, you know, some of these chefs careers, and I get to mentor them because that's what I really do. Giving them feedback, not to be mean or cruel or not to cut them down. I'm giving them feedback. And going back to the earlier seasons, there was a little more pushback, I guess. And it was a little more like, you know, I would kind of go after them a little bit because it wasn't kind of getting through to them. But nowadays, you know, I think because the show has become so legitimized in our industry that the chefs are realizing that they're getting really good feedback. And it's not so much, again, it's not to be mean, it's not to hurt anybody, but it's really just to say, this is what I think you can do better. This is what you've done. That's really, really good. Let's talk about how you're thinking about these dishes. Let's look at how you're putting flavors, combinations together. Let's look at your technique. Is something seasoned? And they all say, this has made them a, a, a better cook and the experience is going gonna, is gonna to last a lifetime. So yeah, I, I really enjoyed doing the show.
2: I think the mentoring thing is I've gotten to mentor some people recently and it really is rewarding. I know you're a fisherman. I think you're a gardener too. Can you talk about those two things?
1: Yeah. Yeah. My go- I'm, So I'm looking over my left shoulder because that's where my garden is. I could see it right there. And I just expanded this year. I built another three boxes and moved my fence about 20 feet. And, you know, so I, I gained a I gained about a, an additional third of my garden, so I'm pretty excited. You know, I, I started doing some starts this year down in my basement, and I screwed them up.
2: It's really hard. I've been doing them on and off for years, and the, it is really hard.
1: Yeah, I, I, I think I left the lights on too long. <laughs> I didn't give them a, a break. Some, some of the stuff planted really well, um, but other other pepper, peppers and eggplants, not so, not so much. But anyway, I bought a bunch of starts, and I'm waiting for them to be delivered, and um, I got them from a local farm called Invincible Farms, and uh, they're also seed sayers, and so I'm waiting for them. But right now I've got peas and fava beans in, and there's lots of lettuces, and there's um, string beans, and there's shell beans, and cucumbers are in right now. Uh, Some herbs are in. Um, What else is out there? Uh, I planted a bunch of flowers this year, which I, you know, I have some attractors. I have a two boxes that are just attractors, but I planted some additional flowers this year just, just, just because, <laughs> um, but yeah, I'm pretty psyched about, about, uh, the garden this year, um, and, uh, having a little more room, uh, but I have garlic, garlic is growing too. I'm just looking over my shoulder. That's, uh, that's looking pretty good.
2: Yeah. My garlic looks good too. Do you eat everything that you grow or what do you do with it?
1: I eat almost everything I grow. If I have a bumper crop of something, I'll bring it to the restaurant. Usually this time of year, I have some extra stuff because I don't have parties yet, <laughs> summer parties. But um, I'll also pickle, preserve. I also started freezing stuff too. You know, you get kale right now growing like like weeds. I'll cut them down, blanch them, and freeze them. And I think a freezer is the unsung hero of the kitchen.
2: Two years ago, three years ago, I started freezing tomatoes whole. I went to someone's. I can't remember who showed me this, but I went to someone's garden, and he just had trays and trays of tomatoes in his freezer. I'm like, what's that? And he's like, you don't have to do anything. You just freeze them, and they're fine. And I started doing it. It's unbelievable.
1: I freeze as well. I freeze tomatoes, but what I do is I freeze when I harvest in September, and that's usually when we shoot, so I'm too busy. And then in the winter, when I have some time, I'll can them. You're right, freezing, defrosting them, chopping them up, and they're fine. Yeah, they're fine.
2: And you get that tomato water out of them which is really fun
1: well you know even more so because the cell structure breaks down so you get a lot more water out of them
2: do you cook cook at home i mean
1: yes i i've cooked you know pretty much every day breakfast lunch and dinner you know for my family so yeah i, you know, I cook i cook a lot at home recently the last three weeks i opened up a new restaurant um so we took our private dining room next door to craft and which was the original home of craft bar and then we moved, we moved craft bar and then we turned to our private room. We had just finished renovating it when COVID hit. And so three weeks ago, we turned it into a restaurant called Balada. It's a Roman trattoria and we're not going outside of the, those dishes you usually find in Roman trattorias. And so I'm not really creating much, but I've been cooking on the pasta station every night since we've opened. And we're only open four nights a week.
2: So you're doing carbonara, matriciana, that kind of stuff?
1: Some variations, like right now we're doing a, uh, a take on, you know, the bitter greens and botarga, but we're using a lot of ramps and ramp tops and we're doing a fava bean pecorino. Although usually you find that salad with like soppressata, I'm doing it with mortadella and, uh, we're doing a, you know, chicory and fennel orange, you know, vinaigrette salad. And we're doing pasta. You know, you, you see them around, uh, Rome, the oxtail off with cocoa and raisins and pine nuts. And, and the meats, meats dish, we're doing a like braised chicken, you know, the peppers, that's just shred it and scoop it and put on a plate. <laughs> um, braised flank steak, very similar to that. A lamb sausage with broccoli rabe. Yeah, so we're having fun with that. And it's, you know, it's a wide open kitchen and I'm, I'm enjoying it, although I'm, I'm tired, man. And how's Kraft doing? Kraft's doing well. I think we're back to 100% tonight. We got through the pandemic pretty well. You know, for me, being the news junkie that I am... I started looking at what's happening in Asia back in January. And in the middle of February, I walked into my office and grabbed my staff. I said, stop buying stuff. And they looked at me and said, what do you mean? I said, stop buying wine. Stop buying office supplies. If you don't need it day in and day out, stop purchasing it. Stop buying plateware. And they looked at me like, "What are you? why? Are we closing? I said, no, we're not closing, but we're going to be closed. And they said, what are you talking about? And I said, just trust me. So we, we managed this. I, I had to lay off a lot of people. Uh, luckily unemployment, especially early on, was very robust. And I kept a core group of people employed. Yeah, we're we're back. Yeah. And we're we're doing okay. Labor's tight right now. A lot of of our, a lot of of my staff left the city. Little by little, they're coming back, but we're short-staffed. And so we had to shrink our menu, all of our menus. And, you know, instead of having four cooks on the line on a busy weekend, five, I have a chef running the pass and two cooks and our business is doing okay. So- We're actually realizing that we can actually do a lot more with fewer people. And that brings you to the pay thing. You know, for years, my staff in the kitchen has not been what everybody thinks of the kitchen staff. It's not a bunch of black and brown people in my kitchen. It's a bunch of white kids out of culinary school and kids coming out of culinary school for the most part are not that good. They know a lot about stuff and food and they can tell you who's doing what, whatever. The the, the muscle memory of working a line isn't there yet. When I say good, I mean line cooks. You know, when I came up, I was a line cook. I loved working the line. So you have these kids coming out of school and they don't have the talent to actually keep up on a line. So you have to hire more of them. They also only want to work with you for, you know, eight months to maybe a year and get a name on a resume and then do do a a stage in Copenhagen and all of a sudden they're chefs. You know, it's not like when I came up, it was 10 years as a cook, five years as a sous chef, and then you got a chef's position. I know I'm sounding like the boomer and with those old days, but that's just the way it was. That's just the way it was. And so now, but also I understand kids coming out of culinary school, they have debt. They've got to make more money, but I'm better off hiring someone for 24, $25 an hour. That's been on the line for 10 years. You know, maybe the, the, the you know, Dominican kid who they don't want to be, you know, on the food network. They don't want to. Participate in top chef. They just want to cook. They want to make some money and they're fine. And they can work circles around these kids coming out of culinary school. And so that's where the pay scale, this is where the conversation needs to go right now. Because for too long, I think people are looking at kitchen help as being unskilled labor, right? But I'm looking at it now where, you know what, I'd rather pay a skilled person in my restaurant, my kitchen more than that kid right out of school. Now, you know, so I, I'd always take, someone comes in, I'll, I'll always, I'm always looking up to fill a role, but a lot of these kids coming out of culinary school, they want to work with me and build their resume. And they were willing to work for less money because they were building a resume. That was always the trade-off, right? But I'm finding that maybe that model not, not, doesn't work for me. And I'd sit there and watch young people come up and just, just sit back and watch them work. And I'm just shocked sometimes about just basic stuff that, just to, again, you're not going to learn it in school. You're only going to learn from being behind a stove. You know, we did, we did our restaurant, velada. There was no training at all. It was me, my chef, Brian uh, Hunt, and one of our sous chefs. And we didn't see the dishes until the first ticket came in. But I didn't have to. As I looked around and said, okay, I have all the ingredients I need. I can start cooking because this is like second nature to me. And it's, it's fun. And we all kind of were able to do that where we didn't even have stuff in the right place. And you wouldn't know. We were just able to dance around. And the next night, we're like, you know, let's move here. Let's move this and this and make it easier. Okay. More efficient. Great. But it was only because we had a lot of experience on, on the line. So so this is where, you know, we talk about pay and pay in our business. I, I think, you know, I got to be honest about it. You know, we were paying people. Again, it wasn't the brown black people getting to take advantage in the back of house. It was the, the white kids looking to build a resume um, who were willing to work for less money. But- you had to have more of them in the kitchen because they weren't fast enough, and so, um, and then the problem is if you if you bring uh, you know someone in that has ten years experience and you pay them twenty four dollars an hour, someone catches wind of that and goes, well, wait a minute, why are I getting twenty nine dollars an hour? Because well, they've been working ten years. You have one year at a culinary school, but I went to culinary school. They didn't. Oh, yeah. But they're, they're still faster than you. And right now I need speed. I don't need someone to know, tell me what's going on, like, you know, in some restaurant in Germany. I mean, sometimes you need, you need what I call mechanics. You need mechanics, you know. Someone's going to, you know, f- get the job done.
2: Do you want to talk about your book at all?
1: Well, okay, I guess. You know, I bought my publisher a book for seven years and, and started out, I was going to do a, a coffee table book, went to Artisan because they do beautiful coffee table books. And I want to do a beautiful coffee table book because my ego wanted me to do a beautiful coffee table book. In fact, I I actually inked a deal at a a book party for Thomas Keller and one of his big, beautiful coffee table books.
2: Yeah, he's done some nice books for sure.
1: Yeah. And I was sitting next to Anne Bramson. And so she said that we'd love to do your coffee table book. And uh, once I started working on that book, and I was going to do it based on Tom's Tuesday dinner, you know, that pop-up high-end, you know, 12-course dinner that I used to do in the private dining room craft where Falada is now, right? And so I started working on that. And I was like, ah, this is insane. I can't do this. The recipe could change from moment to moment. I was back there cooking. And I was around? Like, oh, yeah, yeah, let me use that in here. And I started actually trying to log it. And I was like, forget, this is, this is not going to work. Then I decided to do a, a butchering book. And then right when I decided to do that, about five or six butchering books came out.
2: This is all the same book we're talking about, right?
1: <laughs> oh, yeah, all the same book. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Then I had another great idea to teach my son, teach him how to cook, but not to not to be a professional chef, but just to learn how to cook. And we were going to do it over the summer, and he was dabbling in photography at the time, so he was going to shoot it, too. And we started working, and I think about two weeks into working, his girlfriend, it was his first girlfriend, showed up at my house for the rest of the summer. That was the end of that book. Finally, over... The break the last year, I started thinking of why I do what I do. You start to turn inward and when things get dark sometimes and really started thinking about why I do what I do. And I also during this time, I started doing a lot of Zoom classes, started telling stories. And these stories, a lot of these stories kept going back to, you know, childhood. It, it almost was like I was going through therapy without a therapist there. And a lot of stuff kept going back to to childhood and why I do things and going back to why I started cooking the way I cook and some of the touchstones, like my dad bringing home Jacques Pepin's Law Technique, which he brought home from the library at work. Uh, it ended up in my hands and it completely changed the way I looked at food because I was would have been diagnosed with ADHD. All of my children have been clinically diagnosed. I have a lot of the same issues. I couldn't read a recipe. I couldn't get through a recipe. It made me nuts. And once I learned are understood from jock's books that uh cooking is about technique and method not so much recipes that just completely just opened my mind to cooking and so so i'm writing a book on why on why i i do what i do and it's going to be part cookbook and part um memoir i'm sorry memoir yeah but not a full memoir it's not going to start like you know when i was three um (laughs) but just just around food and around family. And it's really strange. Like I grew up in a four family, and there were two four families on a lot. My grandparents lived in, in one of the other four families. And I spent a lot of time with my grandfather. And um, having never thought about it until recently, gardening, cooking, fishing were all things I did with my grandfather. I'm not realizing that the impact that he had on my life until recently. And so that's hopefully I'm gonna capture some of these these, these story, this storytelling and, they, again, the, the why I do what I do in, in, in this book.
2: I really look forward to that. That sounds great. I can't wait. Yeah, I, I'm going to let you go. I think we have a ton of great stuff here. I appreciate it. And um, I'll see you sometime. I'll come down and have pasta. Thanks, Tom. Take care. So this is broiled or grilled peaches or nectarines. Most of the time you're going to use the broiler for this, but if you have a grill going, it's a terrific option. Half or quarter the peaches or the nectarines, brush them with a little bit of melted butter or just a tiny bit of neutral oil, canola oil or whatever. You could use olive if you wanted to. I think it's also nice to sprinkle that cut side with a little bit of sugar. It helps the browning and obviously makes it, this is a dessert, makes it a little bit sweeter. Just grill, cut side down, flesh side down for two or three minutes until nicely brown. Not a raging fire. If it's a broiler, you're not going to have any trouble. But if it's a grill, make sure it's not too hot. And then turn and grill the skin side for a little bit also. That's really it. If you want to sprinkle a tiny bit more sugar on, that's great. Some cinnamon, some lemon juice, none of the above or all of the above. It's all good. One of my favorite ways to eat peaches. Enjoy that. Okay, it's time for some questions. As always, you can ask your questions by calling 833-FOOD-POD. That's 833-366-3763. Hi, this is Leron Mintz, from Massachusetts,
1: near the New Hampshire border. You asked this question as a joke, but now everyone seems to want an answer and will love your take of how truffle became so popular. To me, it tastes like nasty feet combined with wood chips. But, you know people pay top dollar for truffle shavings. So curious your thoughts. Well,
2: I'm going to tackle Laren's take on truffles. How did it become so popular? To me, it tastes like nasty feet combined with wood chips. Nice. There are truffles and there are truffles. And uh, to some extent, they're an acquired taste. To another extent, they're a rarity and they're hard to find. You know, you need specially trained dogs or pigs. I think they were originally peasant food, and then when the nobility or the rich people got a hold of them, they started paying more money for them. They are a rarity. The smell of a good truffle is definitely different, and maybe it's not to everyone's taste, but it's, uh, it's strong and it's wonderful. They don't have a lot of flavor, so why are they so popular at... an ounce or whatever they are is just a question of scarcity and and chefs promoting them and so on. A good truffle can be a nice treat, but it is not going to be any normal person's idea of a staple. So I guess I'd say just don't worry about it.
3: Hey, Mark. Hello, everyone. Kerry Conan here to answer a recipe call-in question. This comes from Lou in Amherst, who asks about reimagining pasta puttanesca in a way that celebrates Asian flavors. And he says it's got to be sautastic. I love his word. Um, Let's see what happens when we just start swapping out ingredients. Since the tomatoes are peaking right now and they contribute mightily to sautasticness, I say let's keep them. For the noodle, the strands have got to be sturdy enough to twirl in the piquant slightly chunky sauce. So um, Chinese egg noodles, either fresh or dried, or thick udon noodles, or wide rice noodles, many of these are gluten-free, too. Boil them in salted water until just tender and drain, saving a cup of the cooking liquid for the sauce, just like you would pasta. Instead of olive oil and garlic, let's sizzle lots of chopped fresh ginger in a neutral oil, like grapeseed, sunflower, canola, something like that. Chop at least a pound of those ripe, juicy tomatoes, and add them to the pan. Off-season, you just use a can, a large can of whole tomatoes, I guess. Instead of the olives for umami, how about tossing in half the amount of fermented black beans? They're intensely flavored, but delicious, and they're black soybeans, so they even look a little bit like olives. Mash them up. Substitute fish sauce and soy sauce for the anchovy. How about that? Since they're, you know, fishy and salty, and uh, adjust that to taste. Add a little bit at a time and keep stirring and tasting. For the heat, you could keep the red chili flakes or try minced Thai chili or a spoonful of sriracha. And instead of capers, how about for the bright notes, let's finish the sauce with lime zest and juice. So now you're going to toss the noodles into that sauce with some chopped cilantro for the herb and no cheese. Drizzle with a few drops of toasted sesame oil and add pasta sauce as you need. Okay, that's it. Thanks, Lou. Bye.
2: That's it for this week's listener questions. If you have a question about food, cooking, whatever, call us at 833-FOOD-POD. That's 833-366-3763. What can we say about Tom Colicchio? I think what we can say is that this guy is really a standout. First of all, I love talking to him. He's a great guy. When I see him at an event, I'm happy he's there. And um, I feel like, okay, here's a kindred spirit. Second of all, his restaurants have been awesome. When Kraft opened, it was, I wouldn't say revolutionary, but it was really, really good. And it still is. There are many chefs I enjoy talking to, and there are many chefs who run good restaurants, but there are not many chefs who are legit food activists out there on the front lines pushing good legislation, lobbying Congress people, schlepping to Washington, making noise, putting his reputation on the line. You know, not everybody likes activists. So he's losing business. He's probably gaining business, but he's losing business among people who resent the kind of work that he's doing, which is, makes it doubly important for us to support him. It's terrific work. And if there are 100 well-known chefs who are doing the kind of work that Tom is doing, it would make a big difference. So I'm doubly appreciative and thankful for Tom coming on the show. You can follow him on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Tom Calicchio. Colicchio is spelled C-O-L-I-C-C-H-I-O at Tom Colicchio. Thanks again, Tom. We'll see you soon. And thank you everyone for listening. We will see you next week. Bye. Folks, if you liked today's episode, and if you're still listening, I can assume that you did, then please subscribe to Food with Mark Bittman on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you like to listen. It would be real helpful if you left us a five-star review on Apple, and detailed reviews are the best way for new listeners to discover the show. You can find the recipe from today's show in the episode show notes or at bitmanproject.com or at markbittman.com they all kind of go to the same place. Finally, Food with Mark Bittman is a part of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. Check out Airwave's other shows at airwavemedia.com or wherever you get your podcast. I'm Mark Bittman, and thanks again for listening to Food. See you next week.